Hello and welcome to episode five of Encore. Thank you for joining us and we hope that you all had a great Holy Week and a great Easter. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by the In Spirit and Truth music series. The series features music for liturgy from composers who serve in the African-American Catholic Church. Originally a series published by WLP, it is now edited by M. Roger Holland II. Visit www.giamusic.com for more information. And with that, I am honored to welcome on our guest for today's episode, GIA composer M. Roger Holland II. Roger, thank you for coming on the show today. It's great to see you. How are things in Denver? Things are great, Tony. It's great to see you as well. Uh, Denver, I was told from the moment I uh, got here or as preparing to get here, that we get 300 days of sunlight and it has not disappointed. <laughs> wow. That sounds nice. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. for sure. Uh, we'll get into a little bit about, you know, living in Denver and all that a little bit later, but uh, we'll jump right into the, the beginning of the interview here. So I guess my first kind of question is just a little bit about your roots. You know, how did you become interested in music? Um, did you come from a musical family or, you know, what led you on the path to where you are today? Well, uh, there was always music in my household. Uh, my father is a great lover of music, jazz, doo-wop, uh, some popular music. My mother was raised in the church, and she loved classical music. Uh, one of her favorites was Leontine Price. She also loved Nina Simone, um, but she was also a great lover of popular music and uh, plays, Broadway, that sort of thing. So there was always music in my house. I remember my father used to love listening and play records. He has uh, had at least, well, to an extent still does. He doesn't play them anymore, but lots of uh, uh, records by Ramsey Lewis. Okay. So that's how I was introduced to Ramsey Lewis. He was a great lover of uh, Herb Albert of the trumpet and the Tijuana brass for those who go back that far and know what that is. So those are the sounds I grew up hearing. My mother was a trained classical singer. And so she's saying, and one of my first really exciting memories of uh, playing the piano was getting to accompany her because I felt if I was allowed to accompany her, I must have achieved some level of accomplishment. You know, I just couldn't sit down and hack away at the piano. So playing for my mom was a, was a big thrill when I first got started. Yeah, that had to be a really special moment for sure. You're currently a teaching professor in music and religion and the director of the Spirituals Project at Lamont School of Music, University of Denver. Can you just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day work as a professor and then a little bit about your work with the Spirituals Project as well? Sure. So uh, when I interviewed for this position uh, almost five years ago, uh, it was clear that the majority of my responsibilities would be to work with the Spirituals Project in its various facets. But uh, the director of the Lamont School asked me, well, what else would you like to do? And I told her, well, I would love to be able to teach an academic course. She says, done, that's easy. What else? <laughs> I said, well, I would love to direct a choir. Um, and the Spirituals Project has a choir, but it's, it has a very specific mission, and that is to promote and to support the, the work it does with spirituals. So I said, I don't want to change the mission just or what the choir does just to suit my own personal taste and desires. So yeah. I said, I'd like to form another choir that could do some of that and have a varied repertoire. And then, you know, I had to come up with something that would be that, that would distinguish it from the existing choirs at Lamont. We already had three choirs, a men's choir, women's chorus, and the Lamont Chorale, which is sort of our 
flagship choir. So mm -hmm. I said, what could I do that would be different? And I came up with the idea of forming a group that would sing music by American composers, realizing the great uh, ethnic diversity that we have here. So, you know, Spanish uh, American composers, Asian American composers, and certainly African American composers, which I privilege in the group. But it also means I can sing a wide variety of genres, Western classical music, um, mm -hmm. uh, the Americana, patriotic songs, Broadway, country disco, if that was what I wanted to do, gospel music, spirituals. So it enables me to do a wide variety of music, just yeah. not the European canon. So my days typically consist of teaching on Mondays and Wednesdays with my choral, student choral ensemble, the American Heritage Chorale. I teach uh, an academic course. It, it differs. We're in the quarter system. So every quarter I teach something different. I've taught first year seminars, advanced seminars, um, anything from focusing on the popular music of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. to a course on the spirituals and the blues. Last quarter, I taught a course on uh, contemporary gospel music that focused on the aspects of the Black church, religion, and popular culture, which is very exciting for me. Um, the majority of those courses are offered to non-music majors, although music majors are welcome to take those courses. And I teach a, a course that surveys Black sacred music in the United States. So that's my typical Monday, Wednesday uh, schedule in the evenings. On Mondays, I rehearse the Spirituals Project Choir. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, especially these days during the pandemic, I have an onslaught of meetings and I relish the days when there are no meetings. Uh, and then in between that, I do some of the other work that I need to do in preparation, administratively things for the spirituals project. I'm responding to emails. You know what that's about. Oh yeah, Yes, sir. <laughs> that kind of brings us to like the next uh, question. So teaching remotely, I'm sure there's been a lot of challenges that, you know, for both professors and your students as well, uh, and especially in the field of music. So yeah, what kind of uh, challenges have, have you ran into throughout the past year? And, and I guess just, you know, how, what have you done to kind of overcome them, do the best you can? Well, the, the, the spring was of last year was probably the most challenging as mm -hmm. we had to transition very quickly. Most of us were not prepared to move online and deal with online instruction. Um, and we had essentially two weeks to pivot, to finish what we were doing and then figure out how to teach our courses online. That's near impossible to do performative music or ensemble work online because of the latency issues. So we found other ways around that. Many of us decided to focus more on uh, process as opposed to performance and musical performance content. Um, some of the things I was able to do uh, in addition to that, I might assign students repertoire where they had to record themselves singing, mm -hmm. but not towards, even though many people were beginning to focus on uh, virtual choir recordings, that was not one of my uh, priorities at that time. But just trying to give my students as much of uh, a comprehensive musical experience as I could within that short amount of preparational uh, time. But since then, the university has operated beginning this academic year, 2020, 2021, in three modalities. We mm -hmm. offer in-person classes. We offer hybrid or high flex courses, as well as virtual instruction that can be either synchronous or asynchronous. So our ensemble courses now are able to meet in person. 
but we have very stringent uh, in-person protocols for being on campus. Everybody, regardless of uh, uh, whether you're doing music or not, has to wear a mask on campus. We have regular COVID testing. We have uh, maximum uh, room occupancy restrictions to alleviate the, the potential for aerosol infection. So uh, all of our rehearsal spaces are limited. Therefore, our ensemble membership is, is limited. I think the largest ensemble we have has 25, actually 23 members, because mm -hmm. the largest space can only accommodate 25. That includes the instructor and the pianist. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So only 23 students. Many of the other rooms are anywhere between 11 and 17 members, maximum occupancy. We have time restrictions mm -hmm. as to how long we're allowed to be in the space before we have to vacate for the, the, the air to be recirculated and purified and all of that stuff. So, and we have uh, social distancing. So with all of those instructions, we've been very successful in terms of keeping uh, infection rates minimal. And so it has allowed us to be able to have in-person music instruction, but uh, both in terms of ensemble and uh, uh, academic instruction. So uh, that's what I've been doing. And last quarter, I operated in all three modalities. <laughs> so my <laughs> academic course met online. My student ensemble course met in person and the spirituals uh, project choir, we started with a small um, uh, number of people back on campus, but the majority uh, engaged via Zoom. So mm -hmm. I have people in person while others are uh, uh, logged in via Zoom. So that was a hybrid experience. So it's, it's very interesting. That, that was a very, yeah, I did all three modalities last quarter. <laughs> yeah, wow. No, definitely kudos to you know, all educators having to adjust like that. And also kudos to the University of Denver, because it sounds like you guys got some very impressive you know, protocols and that, to keep everyone safe. And, and that's great. That's, that's excellent. Oh, yeah. Moving on. So you were recently named the new editor of the In Spirit and Truth series at GIA. We're extremely excited to have you on, on board the team here. Can you just speak a little bit about uh, what your new position with GIA means to you and then your kind of your plans for the series in the future? Sure. I think this is a wonderful move that GIA has uh, embarked on, and not just for me, but for what it means, particularly for uh, the Black Catholic Church, but also the, the, the Catholic Church at large, because um, as, as uh, one of our, our popes have said, I, I keep, I can't remember at the moment, I want to say Pope Paul, the Pope John Paul, no, Pope Paul, maybe the seventh, I can't remember. But uh, when he addressed the, uh, uh, the church at Uganda, he said, bring your, your gift of Blackness to the whole church. And so the gift of, the gift, gifts, plural, of Black Catholics ought to be shared beyond our own particularity. And um, I think that's one of the things that this series has done and shall continue to do. Um, I'm excited because also, to my knowledge, this is probably the first time, with the exception of James Abington, who's over the African-American church music series, but I think this is the first time GIA has appointed an African-American editor for music dealing specifically with the Black, uh, Catholic, well, with the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, an excellent move. Um, it, it opens up a whole lot of possibilities. It adds the potential for different perspectives being brought to the table. So that to me is very exciting. 
in terms of what I'd like to do and what I feel my charge and my work is, it's to uh, empower other Black Catholic composers that perhaps have not felt invited or didn't feel like they had an opportunity or it was even possible for them to see their work published. We have a lot of very gifted Black Catholic composers out there, but many of them are only what I tell many of them when I do workshops, you're only blessing your community. And that's wonderful, but there's a wider church out here that could benefit from your gifts. And they've either not never thought about it, or uh, they didn't think there was an opportunity or no one has approached them or whatever the case may be. But I feel part of my work is to reach out to these people and to find them and to, to offer them this opportunity to mm-hmm. share their gifts with the entire church. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're very, very excited to see what the future brings for the series, for sure. So you've done some outstanding work as a composer with GIA, some examples being one of my favorites, the Honey from the Rock series, building up the Kingdom Collection, two mass settings, Sound of My People and Welcome Table. I know it is difficult to pick, uh, you know, a favorite of, of your children, so to speak. But do any of these <laughs> do any of these works have a real prominent place in your heart when you look back? And if so, how come? Um, well, I'm going to give two. Uh, one that's outside of what you mentioned. And that one is a comp- it was actually one of my first compositions published with GIA and it was solicited through. Uh, I call him Jimmy James Abington. And he was just starting the series and he came to New York and asked me if I had any things that I'd like to submit for publication. And that was one of two pieces I, I submitted and it, it was accepted. That It was the setting of Lord Make Me an Instrument. And that piece means a lot to me, uh, first because of the prayer, which is attributed to, to St. Francis. Mm-hmm. And uh, that at that time, when I wrote the piece, I think it was 1998, my church choir, Our Lady of Charity in Brooklyn, was getting ready to do its first recording. And I was trying to find and write some original material. I wanted us to have original material and not just recycle those things that have already been written and or recorded. Yeah. And time, a dear friend of mine, the director of the Office of Black Ministry in the Archdiocese of New York, Brother Tyrone Davis, uh, had lost his father. And he asked me to come and play at the uh, memorial mass that that was being offered in New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. And there was a palm card that was distributed uh, during the the mass. And on the back had the prayer of St. Francis. And it was something I'd heard before, but within that context and writing, all of a sudden this melody came to me. And I said, this, I have to, I have to write some music to go with this. And I did, and it, it was included on Charity's album. I uh, re-recorded it for the Building Up the King Kingdom project. Um, but that, that prayer has, and that particular setting has had so much exposure. Many people have purchased it, have recorded it, even recently, Uh, A person I met online on Facebook recorded it with his church choir and did it with the orchestration, which was awesome. I mean, it was all virtual, but it was wonderful, wonderful choir. I've been meaning to repost it and share it to my timeline. But um, this, especially in the recent years with the the racial turmoil we've all been experiencing, the, the, the suffering through and because of the pandemic, that message has such meaning and such power 
it's probably, you would know probably better than I, but it was, it's probably one of my best selling pieces at, at GIA. Absolutely. I was going to say it's, it's definitely a uh, favorite in a lot of reading session packets around the country for sure. Big time oh, favorite. Awesome. Awesome. So I think that piece, it means a lot to me. It's, I think it's one of my most beautiful, if, if a composer can say that, <laughs> I think it's one of my most beautiful pieces. Um, it combines aspects of who I am, two important aspects as a classical musician, but someone who loves gospel music. So it, that particular setting is a fusion of both of those. Uh, but outside of that, with, especially within the, the other three uh, items you mentioned, I would say the sound of my people. And it's not that I think it's the greatest music I've ever written, but it's because of what it means and what it, it signifies, what it represents. I wrote that after the uh, new translation for the Roman Missal had been approved. We were about to all engage with Roman Missal, the third edition, and uh, composers were charged to write new mass settings or revise their old uh, setting or previous settings. And uh, I'll never forget this article that, uh, oh, I'm so bad with names. I was just thinking about him the other day. Uh, one of our, our composers who's a, a priest, Ricky, Ricky Manalo, mm -hmm. wrote an article, Making the Unpoetic Poetic. I'll never forget that article. And the challenges for composers to make that which might seem awkward or not taste good on the tongue to make it so? How do we set a melody that is pleasing to the ear that can be imbibed by the body? Because we, we, our bodies inhabit these melodies and these rhythms, right? And so how can we do that with a text that is, doesn't have the same rhythmic flow? And, and you know, so that was definitely a challenge. And the, the irony of this is before Leon Roberts uh, Roberts had passed, he charged me to write a mass setting. And, and uh, I did, and I submitted it to GIA, and it got accepted. And about a month or two after I signed the contract, I get this letter. Oh, 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 we're putting a stop to everything. We can't publish it because they're going to have a new translation. Everything is going to be obsolete almost immediately. So they halted everything. And yeah. then when the, when the new translation got published and they said, here's what it is, you have these two options. I started with the, with the, uh, the other mass setting, and it was just awful. Everything sounded <laughs> awkward and awkward and cumbersome. And I was like, I can't do this. This is awful. And, and, and then, you know, Ricky's article. So I said, you know, in that moment, I, I really realized the symbiotic organic relationship between text, the, in, the inherent rhythm of text and music and melody and rhythm. So I, I said, uh, bump this. I'm going to start from scratch. So this can be a more organic and natural uh, uh, organic experience. And that's how it came up with Sound of My People. And the title came because I felt that there was not a lot of music out there that expressed the African-American culture. It mm -hmm. didn't contain our idioms. And it's not that the other mass settings weren't beautiful and I couldn't relate to them and I couldn't pray with them, but it's like doing a translation when, when you, you know, when English is not your first language and then right. you have to learn it. So now, you know, you learn English, but what resonates with you is your original tongue, your vernacular. And I said, yeah, I can sing, uh, but you know, Marty Haugen, who's, you know, uh, uh, what is this mass that everybody loves? 
Massive creation. Massive creation, right. Yeah. So, I mean, all of these settings and so many other wonderful settings, it's not that we can't pray with those and we can't find Jesus in that moment, but to have a, something that's intrinsically who you are is so important. I actually did my thesis work on that when I was at Union Seminary, the importance of music from your own culture in your spiritual formation. And so that's why I came up with that title. I said, I want to be able to pray the mass in my own language. And so for that reason, Sound of My People means a lot to me. And even more so, one of the things we talked about when, when I was studying systematic theology, theology occurs in tandem and in conversation with the community. Mm -hmm. And to have the community accept the mass, receive the mass, and take it as their own means a whole lot. So many parishes, Black parishes in particular across the country, sing Sound of My People. I think probably for the same reasons that, that I've articulated. And that to me is so moving and it, it makes me feel it's humbling and, and it's an honor to, to, for people to say, your mass makes me, uh, enables me, empowers me to pray the mass in a way that feels organic. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I go into a church and they're singing Sound of My People, that has to be the greatest reward for any composer. Yeah, Absolutely. I have to, just because, as I mentioned um, at the beginning of the question, Honey from the Rock is one of my favorites. I just got to tell a quick story from that. It was NPM 2016, my first NPM in Houston, and we were using Sing to Your Name in the showcase. And we had uh, CDs were late getting produced, so we actually had to drop ship them directly to Houston. So this was the first time I had heard the song, heard the recording. And let me just tell you, you got up there to play play the piano for the room, and that room was moving for sure. Everyone was dancing. My job that day was just taking video and pictures of the showcase as it was going on. And yes, let me tell you, there wasn't a person in there that wasn't dancing. So that's uh, that's something I always uh, remember anytime Honey from the Rock is brought up. Oh, thanks, Tony. That that was I remember that experience, and and I got to do a quick kind of coaching of the of the room on the song just to get yeah. them in the in the mode of that. And I agree with you; it was awesome singing. Uh, at what we would say, black churches, they were having church. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So, next one, kind of a fun question. So, before your move to Denver, you lived in New York. So. I've only vacationed in both spots. I haven't lived in each place, but I just thought that was kind of interesting because I'd feel like, at least from my you know vacation perspective, they're two completely different places. You got you know the, the hustle and bustle of New York, and then Denver seemed to have you know kind of a laid back, more laid back vibe. So I guess from someone who's lived in both places, I'm just curious to know. A little bit about differences and, and, you know, some things that you really like about each place. Wow. Um, I think I will probably be a New Yorker in my heart for, for the rest of my life. Um, born and raised there. I love the energy of New York. It's the entertainment capital of the world. The, the artistic um, opportunities there for both performance and taking in music and culture. I mean, we've got Lincoln Center. There's Carnegie Hall, there's Rockefeller Center, um, there's Symphony Space, there's so many uh, regional theater companies, Off-Broadway, Broadway as well. I mean, there's just so much there 
Um, there's nothing like it. There's just nothing like it. And then the cultural diversity is probably bar none. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. often been said, I think, that the borough of Queens is probably the most ethnically diverse community in, if not the country, then the world. I mean, there is just so much there. It's such, so, so much richness. So those are some of the things I love about New York, the energy of New York, the hustle and the bustle of New York. Um, it was something I had to adjust to when I came to Denver. Right. That hustle and bustle, man, it's not here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. it's not to say there's not an energy and there's not, you know, business right. persona, but it's not like New York. <laughs> um, and I miss some of that and also the, the great cultural diversity of New York. But what Denver also has is its own kind of culture. I mean, the scenery is gorgeous. The weather is beautiful. It's a little dry here in the Mile High City, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> You know, the, the skies are generally clear, the air crisp, everybody tends to, or so many people are so uh, health conscious, they're into their uh, hiking and running. Uh, one of the things I got frustrated with early on is on Sundays, we have uh, about three or four times a year, these events that shut down the streets. Oh, We're having yeah. these biking things and these running things and these walking marathons. And I'm like, can't you all figure out a way to redirect traffic instead of just shut? I mean, I'm saying that use the streets, but they don't tell you where you can go to avoid this. They yeah. just say you can't use this street. I remember in New York, if stuff was shut down, they would say avoid this area yeah. use these you got other the signs right yep Point right. You where to go right yep yeah so take these detours <laughs> not in denver they just say oh this is shut down and leave you to figure it out and as a person who's not a native that was a real struggle for me one day it took me an hour to get somewhere that usually takes me 20 minutes because oh, i didn't I, I couldn't figure out eventually i just had to call somebody and say how do i get there because <laughs> nobody could tell me so that, that was great. frustrating, but I mean, that's, that's Denver, you know, yeah. they got the Boulder run. Um, the people are also, I would say probably the native Coloradans are, are a lot nicer. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, even the driving, man, I tell you, Tony, I, I at a stoplight or a traffic light, really, if the light turns green often, especially, you know, we're all on our phones these days, sometimes people will sit at the light and you could be sitting there for maybe a minute before the person moves in New York, you would have heard oh, those horns oh, going. Yeah. Yep. Same with Chicago. Oh, yeah. But in Denver, man, they sit back patiently, wait for you to yep. wake up. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? <laughs> so there's that kind of culture here, which is nice. I appreciate that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> As you said, definitely a big, big adjustment going in. Definitely. So you kind of touched on this uh, earlier when you were talking about some of your musical influ- influences, but uh, who are some non-sacred mainstream type music artists that you like to listen to in your free time? Oh, wow. That's that's a hard one. Um, my go-to for male artists is always Stevie Wonder, who is like the overall just yes. incredible musician, writer, composer, performer, you know, singer, keyboard player, well, multi-musician, multi-instrument musician. Um, I love the voice of Peebo Bryson. It has to be one of the smoothest voices in soul 
R&B music. Luther Vandross stands as a pinnacle for me, both as a writer, as a singer. I love his arrangements of uh, background vocals and truth be told that I've shared in other circles. Uh, his writing as for background vocals has influenced my writing. If you listen to the end of uh, the Holy Holy from Sound of My People, uh, I always credit some of that to him, what you hear mm, yeah. in, the, in the vocal line. That's that's my influence from Luther Vandross. Um, who else? Donnie Hathaway is a major influence and artist, someone who I really uh, uh, admire and appreciate. Uh, Patti LaBelle has been one of my favorite singers of all time, as well as uh, Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Michael Jackson. Uh, not necessarily one of my favorites. Not that there's anything wrong. That's the king of pop. And he is the king. Yes. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> one can is the king. That. Yep. So uh, but, you know, when I think I, I think of so many other things when I'm listening to 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 music, um, Dionne Warwick was one of my favorites. Um, mainly because or partly because of the, the the production work, especially early on. She was working with Burt Bacharach and those folks that were great orchestrators. Um, Barry Manilow, I think when she moved to Arista Records, was great songwriter and, you know, the production. So, I mean, th- that's the kind of music I like to listen to. Great production, great arranging great yeah. writing so uh, those are the things i like to listen to when i'm when i'm listening to music right now i'm thinking a lot about aretha franklin uh, a lot when she passed and then with this uh, resurgence of the biopic so i'm listening to aretha franklin um i love how she reinterprets a lot of music and puts her own spin on it you know uh, queen of soul so th- those yeah. are some of the voices i i like to listen to yeah, no, that's a stellar lineup you just listed there for sure. We'll kind of wrap up with this question here. So besides uh, your plans for the In Spirit of Truth series, which you, you laid out for us, and, and this might be kind of a difficult, broad question, but what's next for Roger Holland? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I just got accepted into a doctoral program at SMU. Excellent. Um, Congratulations. Perkins that's School. great. Thank you, it's Doctor of Pastoral Ministry. So, for many reasons, it's it's something I've been thinking about uh, for many many years. Ideally, I would have entered into a doctoral program after I graduated from uh, Union Seminary, but things didn't quite work out that way. And now seems to be a good time, kind of like do or die, to kind of go ahead and make that happen. So there's that. Um, continuing to write, I want to expand some of the writing Uh, for the last probably six years or so, maybe seven, I focused a lot on liturgical music because of the great needs I've felt there, um, Mm -hmm. particularly for liturgical music that speaks to the African-American experience. But um, my spiritual life and experiences go beyond the Catholic church. I've done a lot of work within the Baptist church. I have a lot of uh, affiliations within the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so it's important to me to, not only for that reason, but because of my own spirituality, my, my own uh, spiritual thoughts about the world and my theological experience and my thoughts, I want to write music that is not specifically liturgical, specifically Catholic. And uh, so I want to kind of take a pause and to write music outside of 
what would be uh, particularly Catholic. I'm actually working on completing a song right now called We Are the Church. And it, not, it doesn't speak specifically to the Catholic Church, but who we are as Christian people, what does it mean to be the people of God as followers of a Christian ethic and hermeneutic, and to understand that to follow, I mean, just as the early church says in the Bible, the, the church was not the building, it was the people who came together in community, mm-hmm. who shared a common belief and, and accepted uh, this ch- uh, triune God. That is who the church of God, those who are Trinitarians in their Christian belief, which we are as yeah. Catholic. Right, right. So, so that's what I, I want to do more of that. I'm thinking about writing more and how I mm-hmm. can um, express all of who I am. That's a lot of who I think every artist wants to be. We don't want to be pigeonholed and we want to be able to artistically express every fiber of who we are, every aspect of who we are. And, and most of us are not, <laughs> I, I don't say all, but certainly most of us are not monolithic people. Right. And so I don't, I don't, um, I've spoken with uh, Kate about this as a composer. Yeah, I write gospel music, but that's not all of what I do and all of who I am. Um, I, I tend to do a lot more of that because there's a space for that there, or there's a void for that. And I'm seeking to fill a particular void. And in doing so, that distinguishes me in some ways from other composers. But that's not all of who I am. And I want to be able to give voice to that. Otherwise, I feel stifled. Right. Awesome. Well, hey, this is this has really been great. I, you know, really appreciate you jumping in and enjoyed talking with you. It's good to see you again. It's been how long since we saw each other, right? Since yes. probably, probably one of the conventions, right? Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. But and um, I know I know you're busy and everything. So thank you very much. Absolutely, sir. All right, it's good to see you, man. And and stay <laughs> stay looking sharp. You're you're putting me to shame over here. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Take care, man. my friend. Have a good one. All right. Talk to you soon. You too. All right. All right. Okay. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Roger Holland. Make sure to stay tuned to our website for more information on the In Spirit and Truth series as Roger is going to do some great things. For a limited time, we will give all Encore listeners 10% off Roger's Honey from the Rock collections. The discount will be good on the collection and the recording for volumes one and two and volumes three and four. Use code ENCORE10 at checkout. That's E-N-C-O-R-E, all capital letters, and the number 10. Discount will expire on Friday, April 16th, so be sure to order quickly. We'll be playing a clip of Sing to Your Name from Volume 1 of Honey from the Rock.
Thank you again for tuning in to episode five of Encore. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned to GIA social media channels and soundboard.giamusic.com. Until next time, take care, everyone. <laughs>